So we are heirs to the Reformation. This is the Sunday closest to Reformation Day. We are Protestants. Reformation was a protest. Amidst Protestants, we are those who call ourselves Reformed. You know, we're pretty closely linked to the Reformation. So this past Wednesday evening, we celebrated our Reformation party. And uh, it was a great time. Thank you for everyone who did all the wonderful things to make that happen. And as October the 31st approaches this week, we think not just of the fun we're gonna have for Halloween, which I do hope you have fun on Halloween, uh, but we also think of the unassuming event that occurred long ago that sparked the Reformation. And so on October the 31st, 1517, on All Hallows' Eve, and that's where we get the word Halloween from. It was the beginning of this big church feast. The next day being All Hallows' Day, which we could say is All Saints' Day, what we would say today, which was a feast in honor of all the saints of the church. And it really has a great history in the sense that it built on an early custom in the early church when there was such rampant martyrdom for the faith in the Roman Empire that the church would gather in a special way one Sunday out of the year, actually at a cemetery often, and just praise God and give thanks for the example and testimony of their brothers and sisters that they knew that lost their lives for the faith. So on this October the 31st, 1517, on All Hallows' Eve, an unknown Augustinian monk named Martin Luther in a remote village of Germany called Wittenberg, nailed 95 theses to the castle church there in Wittenberg. And the theses were these short sentences written in Latin intended to provoke academic debate. And the main point of Luther's protest was the sale of indulgences as the youth so rivetingly uh, depicted at our Reformation party. So an indulgence was some good work a person could do that would reduce the temporal punishments of their sin, whether it's their penance, period, or whether it's time in purgatory. So it came to be a popular way for churches to raise money. We could think along those lines. So Pope Leo X issued an indulgence for the purpose of paying for the construction of the great church in Rome called St. Peter's Basilica. He authorized this monk named Tetzel to sell these indulgences in the region of Wittenberg. And the way Tetzel sold them highlighted just how anti-gospel the whole system was. A person could pay him money and be forgiven all their sins and released from all the penalties of purgatory, not only for themselves, but their loved ones, even those already deceased. And it didn't matter they didn't express repentance even. So Luther got alarmed by it all. He was a pastor above all, and he was concerned about the faith of those he shepherded. And so on October the 31st, 1517, he walks to the door of the castle church there and he nails his theses on the door. But what he couldn't predict was that the people across the board were so frustrated 
with the current religious establishment so hungry for spiritual truth, especially a clear gospel they could anchor their lives on and assurance of salvation they could ground their future in, that they quickly translated Luther's Latin theses into German and other languages, circulated them throughout Europe, and sparked the Reformation, and it spread like wildfire among the masses. And so this isn't just an historical curiosity, nor is it just a church culture identity marker, like something we put on a shelf way in the past. This is a revival movement in which God's spirit clarified and called his people back to the fundamentals of the gospel. I mean, the word evangelical traces its origin to that time. If you consider yourself an evangelical today, that's where it began to be discussed. What is an evangelical? Well, it's somebody who holds to this gospel. And so in part during the Reformation and then brought together better afterwards, there were five phrases that were coined that captured the essence of this gospel recovered at the Reformation, which we would say is the biblical gospel. We call these the solas, Latin for only or alone. And so they were sola scriptura, that the Bible alone is your authority. And sola gracia, grace alone, that salvation comes from God, not from you. And sola fide, that it's faith alone, that you're saved by faith and not by your works. And solus Christus, meaning Christ alone is my hope in life and death. And soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. It's all for his glory and none of mine. Because he does it all. And so we find these great theological truths throughout the scriptures. They just, they breathe out from the scriptures and maybe surprisingly, even in the text we're gonna look at today because it's not really a go-to text. And that just underscores the centrality of those doctrines that even in texts like ours today, they, they, they launch out at us. And at first sight, our text is one of those that you kind of breeze over because it's sandwiched between two awesome parables, strange parables. I mean, you got the parable of the dishonest steward and then you got the rich man and Lazarus and sandwiched between, sandwiched between there, you have this little section that seems like Luke just had to throw some sayings together in a little sack just to cover what he wanted to say. But... The more you look at that, the more you realize how, what good sense this passage makes right here. And furthermore, uh, again, you see these truths come out and we see the significant teaching there. We're gonna see like a root sin pattern. We're gonna see something about the interpretation of scripture, something about how we understand the times in which we live and how we ought to respond to Jesus. And I'm gonna try to do it fairly quickly. Um, you know, if you've never had the distinction, the flattering distinction of being, you know, having a song dedicated to you at a rock concert, you know, um, Jeremy and I can talk to you about that. I mean, it's really something. And uh, so Jeremy on Thursday night, me on Friday night, and uh, the structure band at school played a wonderful, wonderful concert. And William Henson just had the nobility to, to, to de dedicate a song to us. And the song was called Long Sermon. So, uh, we, Jeremy and I figured that, you know, it was, it was due, we needed that, and if you needed a spokesman, William took that over for you. Um, it said that uh, how, what, a, what a trial of faith it is for a young man to sit through a long sermon when it's 85 degrees outside and sunny, and your ski boat is gassed up, ready to go in the lake. So, 
I'll try not to try your faith too much, but I do want to try it some. Well, um, let's read God's word. 1614. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Like they ridiculed Jesus. And so he, Jesus, said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. And, and this good word endures forever. And Jesus even had you in mind when he spoke it. So three points, uh, all kind of alliteration. You're going to love this. Uh, the reason for ridicule, the role of revelation, and the response of the recipient. So the reason for ridicule. The Pharisees were Jesus' chief audience in chapter 15. So chapter 15, you recall, Jesus speaks the parables of chapter 15 primarily with the Pharisees in mind. It's to say, Pharisees, why do I conduct my ministry as I do? Why do I befriend tax collectors and sinners? Well, I'm reflecting the gracious heart of God that he pursues lost people, which is also, even though you don't realize it, why I keep challenging you. God's coming after you. Then in chapter 16, Jesus refocuses his audience and he turns specifically to his disciples. So the, the parable of the dishonest manager is spoken especially to the disciples. How does, a, how does a disciple who's experienced God's extravagant grace live? And this strange parable aims to kind of startle us and motivate us that a disciple who's experienced God's extravagant, lavish love lives with this forward-looking, decisive, creative way. Like we understand we have a, a narrow window of opportunity that one day we'll stand before God. And so now we're not fixated on securing our earthly comfort. We're fixated on our heavenly home and helping other people uh, get there as well. And then Jesus applies this teaching of the dishonest manager of being shrewd with your time. He applies it specifically to our view and use of money. And so he says that money is essentially a trust and a threat. So it's a trust in the sense that we are charged to be stewards of the wealth God's entrusted to us 
and to use it in a forward-looking, decisive, creative way by investing in people to help them towards eternity. And as a threat, we're supposed to view our money as something to be aware of, knowing our sinful hearts and how we link onto other things, that it presents us with a danger that we'll end up worshiping it alongside God and essentially derail our faith, for you cannot serve both God and money. So now we read in verse 14, the Pharisees have heard all this. Like they're overhearing Jesus speak to his disciples. And that they've heard it. They've heard Jesus talk about how we need to be generous with our money and, and careful about our money. They, they've heard Jesus' strange parable and his application towards their pocketbook. And they look at each other and they look at the other onlookers and they just ridicule Jesus. I mean, it literally means they turn up their nose at Jesus. They sneer at him, they, they curl up their lips, they murmur, mock him. It, I mean, the visual is really striking. And so Luke gives us the reason, like Luke gives us a, a view into what's going on underneath the surface, what the reason for them deriding Jesus, and he said, Jesus looks at him and says, look, you're, you're lovers of money. And so, even that example teaches us that oftentimes when people disparage Jesus or disdain his people, there are sin commitments underneath that that motivate that. And sometimes we have to see that we have those too. The Pharisees are really right here proving Jesus' words that you cannot serve God in money. Like they're proving it. Like you've rattled our idol and now we are gonna discredit you with all that we have. We're gonna, we're gonna belittle you before others in order to like protect our way of doing things. And so here, Luke shows us that money uniquely exposes our heart's true loyalties. It has a certain power to do that. And so it's helpful for us, you know, we can do some soul searching here. Like how, how is that exposing what, I, what, what I'm truly linking my security and life in? And there's other things we can do that with. So, or, or think about the Reformation, like, the need for money to finish St. Peter's Basilica led them to corrupt the gospel itself or to officially do things that just undermine the gospel. It exposed idols of power and success. And so it was a scary thing. The Pharisees would never have admitted that they really loved money. Like they wouldn't have even seen it. And, and we wouldn't either. You know, Keller in his, product, uh, his uh, book on idols says, you know, you, you only compare yourself to the person just a little bit more than you are. So you don't see your idols. So the Pharisees were the spiritual lay leaders of Israel and they set the pace for religious living and law observance. If somebody asked like, who's gonna be saved? Everybody would say, well, I know those, those folks are, the Pharisees are, like they do everything perfect. 
And so the Pharisees viewed their own wealth as a divine endorsement, like God's reward for their righteous living, like demonstrating God's pleasure over them and their religious observance. And, you know, we can slip into that attitude too. Yet Jesus' teaching exposes their practice of religion as really a facade. It's, it's superficial. It's a mask of their true God. Jesus has gone underneath the service to see what they're really worshiping. Like even their almsgiving, which was something they valued highly, was really just a token gesture for them. But as deep as that is, Jesus goes even further down because then he looks at them and says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. And we could spend a a lot of time here, and this would be a great prompt for a devotion in the morning. In what sense do I justify myself? So on the one hand, they're living this this pretense. They want people to see them in a certain way, but their religious practices are really covering up what they're living for that's not God, but God can see their hearts. And God calls that hypocrisy an abomination. But we can even go down further. So on the other hand, that phrase, justify yourselves, is profound. It, it, it taps into a, a deep-seated, fundamental, fallen tendency to be self-sufficient, autonomous, to make it on our own. And it just manifests in this way with the Pharisees. When it's all said and done, they want to justify themselves before God by being good in comparison to others and being applauded, approved, exalted, praised for their good deeds. That in their minds, what that served for is that if they received such approval from others for their law keeping, then certainly that also meant God welcomed them on the basis of their law keeping. And and Jesus calls that self-justifying compulsion an abomination. Like it undercuts everything about the gospel. And so the Reformation was all about, do we justify ourselves or does God justify us? And so the fundamental question of scripture is, how is sinful man justified? How does sinful man get right with God? Like do we make ourselves right with God or does God make us right with himself? That, that's the fundamental question of scripture. It hit me really strongly reading through Job and seeing that that came up in Job, like all the way back there. So Luther's recovery of the doctrine of justification is what set the great revival of the 16th century Reformation aflame. And one of the ways he explained justification was through the Bible's storyline of Christ's marriage to the church. I like this, a fresh view of it. So just imagine a king, you know, because all, all throughout scripture you have one way to explain the gospel is that the groom comes after his wayward bride. And so a king representing Jesus marries this poor, mistreated, indebted girl. And she's also a prostitute. And so her debts are way too great for her to pay off. Like she can't do it. She's doomed to a life of of shame and misery. 
Yet the king sees her and loves her and woos her to himself. And so at their wedding service, they make their vows and she vows this. All that I am, I give to you and all that I have, I share with you. And just like that, all her debts and shame becomes the king's issue. And then the king vows to her, all that I am I give to you, and all that I have I share with you. And just like that, all his wealth and and glory and respectability becomes hers. The, The prostitute becomes a queen. The great marriage swap, the joyful exchange of the gospel is is laid out there. Your change of status because the judge has declared you right on the merits of his son. And we see sola gracia here. It came from God, not from us. Sola Deo Gloria, God must be exalted in salvation, not us. Ephesians 2, 89, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. Well, second, the role of revelation. Then Luke has Jesus speak about the place of the law and the prophets, which is all the Old Testament revelation. He says, the law and the prophets were until John, since then the good news of the kingdom is preached. And so this is a pretty profound section. Luke is all about promise and fulfillment. So Jesus is the greater David who has the real kingdom. He's the greater Moses who leads us on the Exodus. He's the fulfiller of all the covenant promises. Everything hinges on him. No ultimate Old Testament figure could do it. All point to Christ. And he's set apart in sharp relief because everyone else fails. And then Jesus comes on the scene as the one who was faintly prefigured by all the Old Testament people. So Luke's saying that the main purpose of the Old Testament, as you're reading through it, your, your, your main point there is Christ, the Redeemer who has to come. It's Christ alone. And we can't understand the Old Testament without that main purpose. So the law and the prophets present the utter desperation of our sin condition and proclaim who must come to rescue us. Christ alone is always the hero. And so Jesus, John the Baptist serves as this bridge figure here when it says that the law and the prophets were until John, since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. John is a bridge figure, a transition figure between the Old Testament and the New. And Luke, earlier, had called him the one crying in the wilderness, make the way for the Lord. So John marks this time of change between, you know, the time of promise to the time of fulfillment. It's this watershed moment. Fulfillment has dawned. And this is the time in which we live, and the Pharisees were having a difficult time dealing with it. They thought that when the time of fulfillment came, it would look different. Their expectations were different, and they were struggling with it. And what Jesus is looking at them and saying is, look, now that I'm here, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. The king has come, exerting his gracious saving rule, and you're to receive him. 
so the question is, if that's the case, if the main point of the Old Testament is to point to Jesus, then what's the continued role of the Old Testament, especially the law? Like, does the law continue to be binding on us? And Jesus says in verse 17 that God's law is not gonna come to an end. He says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And so Jesus is saying literally that not one stroke or horn, one little marking of the law is gonna be eliminated, but all remain firm just as heaven and earth would have to vanish for the law to cease to be binding. And so the question for us is, why does Jesus feel like he needs to say this to the Pharisees? I mean, they're the champions of God's law. They're the expert interpreters of God's law. Well, Jesus is saying, you're not that. You're neither the champions of it nor the interpreters of it because you're ignoring the main purpose of God's law, which is point to me. And you're picking and choosing commands you want to keep, especially about money. And so underneath all of this is who is the authority? Who interprets God's word? And the Pharisees viewed themselves as the authority. And Jesus is saying, I'm the word of God himself. It's my word. It's about me. I'm its interpreter. I reveal God and I reveal the way to God. I'm the authority over it. And so we see in the Reformation the principle that, that caused it to arise is that rediscovery of God's word, that it, it, it got in the hands of the common people. It's scripture alone. And Jesus is under, undergirding scripture alone to the Pharisees. In the face of their tradition, he's saying, no, I'm the interpreter of God's word. It's scripture alone. And then he doubles down on the Pharisees and he says, in no way are God's ethical demands weakened now that I'm here. So he moves from money to another illustration. The other illustration seems to be out of place here, but it's an application of what he's trying to say. He speaks about divorce. And so the Pharisees, not only did they interpret money to their convenience, but they also interpret divorce to their convenience. They interpret the law and the prophets to say that a man could divorce his wife, but a woman couldn't divorce her husband. And furthermore, a man could divorce his wife for any or any reason whether he no longer liked her cooking or her looks. And that's way afield from the Old Testament teaching. And so Jesus rebukes them saying, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. What he's saying is when you Pharisees divorce your wife and remarry, you commit adultery. When you, Pharisees, marry a divorced woman, you commit adultery. And you just notice, none of the exception clauses are here. The Matthew 19 one, the 1 Corinthians 7 one, because that's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point here is to call them out on their self-serving interpretation of his word. And they're wanting to portray themselves as expert interpreters and practitioners of God's law, while all the while breaking the seventh commandment on adultery through condoning and promoting the practice of serial marriages. It was so self-serving and he calls them out. And so Jesus exposes their dishonesty. He declares himself to be authority of the word and he says in the age of fulfillment, the lavish grace of God revealed in me 
your responsibility to God's law isn't lessened but deepened. Like those who've experienced grace even more want to honor the one who has granted them such grace. And so then finally, the recipient, the response of the recipient. And so that leads to what our rightful response needs to be with respect to the gospel of the kingdom. And so before this momentous event, this tectonic shift in the history of the world where the king finally come, where promise is given way to fulfillment, which is the time in which you and I live, the king himself has come, he's exercising his saving rule, he's displaying the extravagant love and grace of God, he's even going to lay his life down at the cross to pay the debt for our sins so we can be declared righteous on Jesus' work. Like, how should you respond today? Because it does require a response. It requires a, an initial response and an ongoing growth in that response. And Jesus says the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. And that is a great phrase. It's another wonderful prompt for a devotion. So Jesus is saying the, in the Old Testament, the members of the kingdom were primarily Jews, ethnic Jews, primarily. It was primarily for that nation. However, God's plan was always that the nations would come to Christ. And so now that the king is here, everyone is forcing his or her way in. All kinds of people from all nations, from all races and ethnicities, all social groupings, and not just those you would expect from, from people like tax collectors and sinners, the, the dregs of society, they're all coming in, and that, that's the biggest news of our time. It's not the news we hear on the news, but it's what's really going on. And the secular West might imitate the Pharisees and sneer at Jesus, but the nations are coming to Christ. Everyone is forcing his way in without distinction. And if a person will enter the kingdom, he will enter this way. You won't just drift into the kingdom on autopilot. There'll be a, a forcing, a pushing your way in because you're gonna push across all kinds of obstacles and barriers in your life. Just think about the parable of the prodigal God. You got the younger son who has to push through barriers of shame for what he did. But you got the elder son who has to push through the barriers of his own pride and his good record. Like are you gonna enter the kingdom or not? Or think of it like you're going to a big exciting football game at a stadium and all of a sudden, everybody's there trying to get in those narrow gates, and you're backed up. But everybody's just jostling to get in the gates. There's all this excitement and eagerness and urgency, none of this passivity. It's a, pictures a, a strong desire to want to get in. And that picture's faith. It's a robust faith. It's never just an intellectual ascent. It, it's a life-changing experience where we so want to be in God's banquet, in God's kingdom, that we say, that's what I want, and I'm gonna push through, that would keep me, and my faith is I'm gonna cling to Christ. Come what may, I want that. And so that, does that describe you today, that I'm forcing my way in? 
that's what I want, my heart's desire. Faith alone, that's what faith looks like. God has done it all for me and I get to enter. And so even in a passage like this, we see scripture alone come out, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And might those doctrines resonate in a deep, deep way and ever deeper in your hearts as we see that God's done it all and we receive his gift by faith in Christ. Amen. Let's stand.